please turn to Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up into heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When they were therefore come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but you shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he spoke these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, He men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into the heaven? This same Jesus, which was taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Then... They returned unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room, where abode both Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together were about 120. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spoke before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained a part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue a keldama, which is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, let no man dwell therein, and let his bishopric let another take. Wherefore, of these men which have accompanied with all, all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. They appointed two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, 
And the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Please be seated. Good morning. Have you ever been in a position where assumption got you into trouble? Perhaps you assumed that a message you communicated would accomplish a certain end, and and, and then you realized down the road that it didn't quite do what you assumed that it would. Or maybe you assume that your co-worker would take care of a certain problem and a day or two later you find out that the problem has mushroomed because the co-worker did not take care of the situation and you took it for granted that he would. Perhaps you're here today and you're assuming that Your life is going okay. No major obstacles to this point in your life. You've been operating this life just fine on your own. And you don't see any reason or need to allow God or anyone else for that matter to direct the course for how you're going to live. Maybe you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus. The question still goes out to you as well. Have you assumed some things about the Christian life? Have you assumed that that knowing the Bible, what it says is sufficient? In your relationships with those here in the body of Christ... Have you ever assumed that some things really are happening or you've assumed certain things are taken care of and yet perhaps you've not gone to that brother or not gone to that sister just to make sure you've made an assumption? You know, even as I stand here today, I, I, I do not want to make the assumption that each one here is in Christ. Nor do I want to assume that those who are Christians are abiding in the vine of Christ. I don't want to assume that you know all things about the Holy Spirit. We're talking a lot, and we'll be talking a lot as we continue in the book of Acts, about the Holy Spirit. Nor do I want to assume that you're operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. Making assumptions can get us into trouble if we're not careful. In the text today, I believe there are some assumptions made. The apostles are assuming a connection between Two things. And just as a a, a prefatory note, I am not in any way, shape, or form squashing or condemning the apostles for thinking and believing these certain things. You see, first of all, Jesus has been speaking a lot about 
the Holy Spirit to come, has he not? In fact, we spent a great deal of time, five weeks, looking at John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And in those chapters, he spends a large amount of time ministering to his disciples, speaking to them about the Holy Spirit yet to come, speaking to them about his role in their life. You see, it was definitely a high priority in the heart of Christ before the cross. But you see, Jesus has also been talking much about the kingdom of God. How do I know that? Well, last week, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, says, To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them, during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. What was on his mind? What was he talking about with them during that 40-day post-resurrection stint? Things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Things pertaining to the rule and reign of God in their life. Guys, listen, this is important, and I want you to get this. So, Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God. Those were two big items of discussion coming from Jesus, landing on the ears of the disciples. In fact, if you turn just briefly to, to Luke 19, right on the heels of the Zacchaeus account, right? Verse 11. We see even in the life and ministry of Jesus, during, during that ministry time, leading up into the cross, but, but this is an interesting verse. Verse 11. Now as they heard these things regarding Zacchaeus, right? It says, he spoke another parable. Why? Because he was near Jerusalem. He was getting ready to go to Jerusalem. The triumphal entry was about to occur. And the text says, and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. You see, Jesus knew that's what they thought. And so he shares this next parable specifically because of that. See, this connection between his pending death and the kingdom of God. This was all before the cross. What I want to say is that this idea, this speak of the kingdom of God is not new. And, and the disciples hearing this, they were hearing this and thinking some of these things even during the life and ministry of Christ. So before the cross, Jesus reveals his heart. Speaking often on the Holy Spirit to come. And then after the resurrection, during that 40-day window, Jesus speaks to them of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So, so think about this. Let's, let's, let's try best we can to think about what the disciples may have been thinking. Surely with all this talk about the Holy Spirit to come, there must be a connection with the kingdom of God. Surely the Holy Spirit's arrival will be the time when he restores the kingdom to Israel. Do you see the assumptions made? Well, and I believe one might see how the apostles could think this way. I mean, after all, Jesus did spend a great deal of time speaking about the kingdom of God and talking about the arrival of the Holy Spirit. The text points out man's assumption perhaps is not the Lord's priority. 
we're going to fill in the blanks a little bit more as we go. But I believe that's a good foundation for where we're going. You know, I want you to think about the times in biblical history when people assumed something to be so, and it, and it truly was not. All right, I'm going to give you just a few examples. And you can, I encourage you to jot down your own. I'm sure you'll come up with all kinds of examples of this. How about the Ark of the Covenant? 1 Samuel chapter 4. You remember they're in the battle with the Philistines and, and the Philistines are winning. And the statement is made, you know, oh, let's go get the ark. And the ark will save us. You see, there was an assumption that having the ark of the covenant there was going to essentially win the day. But if you read the story, you find out that's not true. In fact, the ark gets captured. What about in Samuel, we see this battle, this well-known battle. Many of you young men know this battle, David and Goliath. You remember the words told to David? You cannot fight this giant. He's been a fighting man since his youth, and you're but a boy. You see, King Saul and the Israelite army assumed a great deal about Goliath. And yet, they assumed very little, it seems, about their great God. And it took a little shepherd boy to bring victory that day, the Valley of Allah. You see, he assumed his God was big enough to rout this uncircumcised Philistine his faith rested in the God he served. You see, he wasn't looking at how big Goliath was. No, he was focused on the magnitude of his God. The battle, he says, is the Lord's. What about that battle of Ai? Remember that? Remember that? Right on the heels of Jericho. Things were looking really good. And they go and they look at the land and, and they come back and say, do not let all the people go up, but let... Let about two or 3,000 men go up to attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. We got this one all taken care of. And yes, while it's true, Ai may have had few. The Lord tells Joshua, your sin is great. And that sin must be dealt with. You see, you're assuming you're going to win the battle because of your strength. Let me remind you, it's not about your strength. Or what about, I, I, I was enjoying reviewing this particular story in biblical history. What about Haman's providential visit to the palace? Remember that? I mean, if that's not a foot-and-mouth scenario, here he is. He's coming to make request of the king. He wants to hang this guy, Mordecai. It just so happens that the king that, that night couldn't sleep. Church, that's no coincidence. And he pulls out the chronicles to be read, and he's reminded and stirred about the assassination attempt and the man who uncovered that plot, Mordecai, what's been done for this man? And the king is wanting to honor this man. 
And so who should happen to be in the, in the outside of the courtyard at the time but Haman. And he has Haman come in. In fact, it's worth reading. Oh, it's worth reading. Look at the book of Esther for just a moment. Chapter 6. I'll just start reading verse 6. Haman came in and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman, uh, Haman thought in his heart. He, he's making an assumption here. Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Right? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor... And it gives this big, long list of things, right? Then, then verse 10, the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. <laughs> I love that text. You see, he assumed wrongly, didn't he? What about this one? Much less humorous. New Testament, Matthew, chapter 7, 21 through 23. Red words, these are words of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. What a tragedy to assume you're entering the kingdom of heaven and yet are not. And you know, this morning I would urge you in light of this not to assume that you are in simply because you attend weekly Sunday gatherings. Not to assume that you're in because you just happen to know a lot of information about the Bible. The Word calls us to be doers of the Word, church, to walk faithfully with the Lord in the light of His commandments, in the power of His Holy Spirit. And that's where Jesus goes here in Acts chapter 1. It's not simply that the Holy Spirit is coming, but that he embodies the very thing needed in your life to live the way that Jesus has called you to live. The Holy Spirit is coming. Acts chapter 1 tells us this. But, but we need to understand something. He's coming not as some... Attraction, right? He's coming, you know, and it's just hype. It's not, not in that way. He, he's coming, and what he's going to do is he's going to turn the hearts of men toward the things of Christ. He's coming to make a difference. He's, he's coming to convict men of their sin, to convict the world of righteousness, to convict the world. He's going he's to bring about judgment, pointing them toward that judgment. See, he's coming to make a difference in the lives of those who are going to follow earnestly after Jesus. 
Oh, and church, he does make a difference. You see it. You notice it. It's recognizable. It's easy to see his presence, and sadly, it's also easy to notice when his presence is not there. Man's assumption is not the Lord's priority. I want you to keep that in mind as we work through this text. Look at Acts 1, verse 4. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. I read this verse, and I see the sovereignty of God at work. We've got to remember, the apostles, they, they had no idea truly what was coming with the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Yes, they had been told on many different occasions that he was coming. But the how of it all, and the timing of his arrival, the explanation for why Jerusalem... Why wait in Jerusalem? Why? These were unknown to the apostles. And yet God is working, speaking, orchestrating his very plan. Right here in Acts 1 verse 4. The text says he commanded them. He commanded them. This was not a request. This was not an option. But a command. And then look within that. Look at the contrast presented. He commanded them, first of all, not to depart from Jerusalem. But, okay, don't do this, but to wait. To wait. Wait for what? Well, text says they were to wait for the promise of the Father, which, according to Jesus, they'd heard him talk about that. In fact, if you go to the end of Luke's gospel, this is interesting to read. And I'll begin in 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, disciples, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. That covers pretty much the Old Testament, right? And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it was, is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. You can mark that. Beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Tarry. Similar to that word wait, isn't it? Tarry. You know, it's interesting here in Luke chapter 24, when you ask tarry for what? Or tarry where? We get a where, it's in Jerusalem. They're to wait in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 1, the command is to wait for the promise. 
to wait for the promise to tarry in Jerusalem. Okay, you get the idea that Jerusalem is the place to be. For the promise, the long-awaited Holy Spirit is coming to Jerusalem. That's where you need to be. Don't depart from Jerusalem. And there's also a good reason we'll get to in a moment. Why Jerusalem? But you know, there was an, there was an interesting principle here that I was looking at in the text. This principle of waiting. Waiting for the very thing Jesus has promised. Waiting for the very thing Jesus has promised. If you're anything like me, your tendency is not to wait. I mean, we live, we look around us and you see things going on. We live in a culture that wants things right now. Right? Right now. I don't want to wait. Do you get frustrated with waiting? When God's word reflects a promise, do you push it aside simply because you don't see it yet? You know, I'm reminded here of Romans 4, 20 and 22. It says, he, Abraham, did not waver at the promise of God. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith. Giving glory to God and being fully convinced, fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. In fact, we could just go to Hebrews 11, right? All of those folks who didn't see the very things promised to them. Yet by faith, they held on, didn't they? Are you impatient with what God's spoken in his word? We've got to remember, days, as you and I think of days, the Lord doesn't calculate that same way, right? A thousand years are like what? His time frame, his time reference is, is a bit different than ours, isn't it? In fact, Psalm 119, 89, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in the heavens. Forever, it stands firm. Is it your tendency to rely on your own strength, to, to do things in your own power, to come to conclusions based solely on what you can and cannot do? Is it all up to you? Is that what you base it on? And I think there may be two answers to that. I think intellectually we know, we know what the word says. But operationally, I think, is where we have the problem. Because operationally, we just walk in, we, we walk in a way much like the world. We see things in our own strength. And in, well, I can't do it here. I, oh, can't be done. As opposed to, what does the word say? What's the word say? What has he promised he's going to be doing? You know, just to give you a couple promises that you can count on, and there are many. Maybe that's an exercise this week for you. 
look at some of these precious promises. How about Hebrews 13, 5? It says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, here it is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. As you sit here today, do you believe this promise? Or how about 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and, if that's not enough, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, regardless of what you've gone through, his promise holds true. Have, have you confessed your sins? Have you agreed with God about your sin, about what your sin is and what it looks like in, in, through his lens, through his eyes? The text says, if so, he, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Some of you are swimming around in this stuff. There's a great promise right here, church. Confess your sins and recognize and realize He's faithful, He's just to forgive you your sin and then to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Wait for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. This one you've heard me speak of, Jesus says, wait for him. Look at verse 5. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Look at Mark's gospel for just a moment. We could have selected another gospel, but... I'm partial to Mark on this, so we'll, we'll go to Mark, chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Verse 7, And he preached, saying, There comes one after me, who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here's what John did. Here, here's the purpose of his ministry, Jesus says, going back to Acts 1. He preached, he baptized with water, all with a view toward Jesus, who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Remember that Jesus himself operated in the Holy Spirit. Remember, shortly after his baptism, the Bible says the Holy Spirit descended upon him. Shortly after that, the Holy Spirit sends him into the wilderness with Satan. Shortly after that, according to Luke 4, verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. He returned in the power of the Spirit. And you know, you think about what John did. 
And the picture that Luke is, is painting for us here through these words of Christ. You know, water, baptism, John. The picture of going down under the water and coming back up. This participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's depicted in the scriptures through water baptism. Jesus says, John baptized with water, but you... See, here's what John did, but here's what's about to happen to you. You are about to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You're not simply going to get wet. You're going to be indwelt forever. That's good news. That's wonderful news. But be careful. Don't assume. Don't try to manufacture the arrival of the Spirit with your own good ideas. I'm, spend, I'm sending the Holy Spirit to you. You shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Not many days from now. You know, when, when you hear that something is about to happen, how, how, do, how do you respond to, to something that's about to, to go on. You hear some news of what's about to happen. Maybe your tendency is to play the whole thing out in your mind and you work through what it might be like. You, you play out these scenarios in your mind and, and perhaps you start to assume some things, right? I believe we'll all do this. You know, for instance, you've got a big meeting and you're leading the presentation. And you know it's Monday. You start working through and thinking about what this meeting is going to look like because this meeting, you see, is very important to the continuance of your job. And so you're thinking about all the things that need to be done. You're, you're making some assumptions, not necessarily bad, but you're making some assumptions. You're playing this whole thing out. Oh, what about this? Maybe on a more practical note. You've got doctor appointment Tuesday or some of you I know in here have had you know, dentist appointment right and you have that dentist appointment and you're going to get those wisdom teeth out you see you're playing through your mind oh my Tuesday is coming and I've never had my wisdom teeth out but you're thinking to yourself I just don't like the idea of it and you're thinking through what it might look like what it might sound like. Ah! Lord willing, they knock me out, I don't hear a thing. Or, or what about something like a trip to grandma and grandpa's house? You see, you start thinking about what trip to grandma and grandpa's house is like. And you, you, you've been there before. And, and so when you hear, you hear the news that it's about to happen, you're going to be going there. Oh, grandma and grandpa's house. Ah. I enjoy grandma and grandpa. Grandma and grandpa's house. They take good care of me. They give me any food that I want. And they, 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 they treat me like a king and a queen. I was thinking about moving, you know. This, you know, that's where I'm at right now. You know, you're, you, you tend to, you know, something's happening. It's happening. And we're, we're T minus two weeks, right? And, and so it's happening. 
and you're thinking about all these things and, and playing all these scenarios out in your mind. And There's a lot of things there that we can consume our thoughts with. But you see, you know, we're going to, to see here in just a moment in this text in Acts that the purpose the Lord has for his apostles waiting for the promise. You see, they don't see it yet. They don't see it yet. How do I know that to be true? Look at verse 6. Therefore. There's a connect here, right? From what's been previously to right now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him. Jesus, remember, has, has commanded them initially. And now, after hearing some things, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, on the heels of Jesus' command to wait for the promise of the Father comes a question from the apostles. The question sheds light on how they were processing Jesus' words of late, speaking of the kingdom of God and of the Holy Spirit. Are you at this time? That's a key phrase in the question. At this time is the time at hand for the kingdom to be restored to Israel. You see, to the apostles... The Holy Spirit's arrival seemed to be an ideal time for Jesus' kingdom being restored to Israel. They assumed an immediacy. Now is the time. They, they assumed that the Holy Spirit's arrival meant something for Israel. I mean, look at how Jesus immediately responds to the question. Take note of what Jesus addresses in his response in verse 7. And then look at how he directs, redirects the apostles' thinking in verse 8. He's going to show them the intentions for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that man's assumption is not the Lord's priority. Look at verse 7. He says, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Okay, so Jesus' answer picks up on the when, Right? The timing of things to come. The question has an element of time in it. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He says, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know. The idea communicates a redirecting of the apostles' thoughts. Turning them from futuristic thinking... To the present as it pertains to the arrival of the Holy Spirit. You see, he's trying to get them to understand they're looking out there in regards to the arrival of the Holy Spirit, thinking this has something to do with Israel. And Jesus is directing them and pointing them toward the present. And he's going to help them understand and see that this has huge implications, not just for Israel. Oh, yes, it has implications for Israel. But for the world. This has implications for the world at large. So, his answer points them away from the, the, the nationalistic, any of this nationalistic fervor of, of restoring the kingdom to Israel. You, you know, he's, it's almost as though, guys, you're thinking too small here. You're thinking too small. See, 
The arrival of the Holy Spirit is going to reach far beyond Israel. Stop concerning yourselves about the things the Father has in his control. What a lesson for us right there. Let's pause. There are things the Father has in his control. There are things that he knows. And you and I don't. Deuteronomy refers to those as those secret things, right? Are you okay with those things being secret? Are you okay with God knowing those things? Are you constantly trying to wrestle and figure out and piece together what, what, well, how? He's directing us to think differently about some of these things in light of the Holy Spirit coming. I'm reminded of of, of Ezekiel and, and thinking about even back in the prophets and the words that were spoken. Ezekiel 36, 27, 28, where he says, I will put my spirit. God says, I'm going to put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Cause you to walk in my statutes. See, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be, yes, it's going to be practical, but it's going to be present. It's going to be impactful right now where I'm living because the spirit within you will cause you to walk in my statutes because the spirit, you see, wants to remind us and, 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 and point us toward the very things of Christ. So in Ezekiel, he says, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. That's from Ezekiel. You see, the, the arrival of the Holy Spirit was going to equate with present tense living. Jesus' response in verse 7 is a rebuke of sorts to, to the apostles. It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. You see, I believe there's also a principle of word here as well. Right here. It needs to be spoken. There is a fascination for some. This is not a blanket statement covering everybody. There is a fascination with some regarding the study of end times. Eschatology is that long word. Jesus, according to what I read in the Bible, is going to return. But when exactly that will happen, the Bible does not state. The Holy Spirit has not been given to you as a key code for figuring out exactly when Jesus is coming back. The Bible seems to present a clear picture that when Jesus does return, it will be obvious to everyone. All are going to know. And Jesus wants the apostles, and by extension, he wants all believers in Christ today Stop with all the imaginative plotting and, and planning that accompanies the Lord's return. You see, camps are erected here. Walls get built right here. When he's coming back, does the Bible provide signs of his return? Absolutely. Yes. Does the Bible give precursors to his coming back? Absolutely. 
But does the Bible call the one in Christ, the one who has the spirit of God in him, does he call him to spend his days driving home a stake in the sand, building a case for when Jesus is going to return? I don't believe that is the Lord's priority concern, church. I don't believe, according to the text, that the Holy Spirit is given as a license to wade in the waters of end times discussions. I'm not advocating that the discussion is pointless. But simply advocating that it ought not consume our thinking, nor should it divide those in the body of Christ. This idea of dissecting all the ins and outs and forecasting sound like weathermen. He's going to be rolling in around midnight, Tuesday. That's when he's coming. No, putting these dates out there. This is when he's coming. No. There are certain things that only the Father knows. And we see right here in Acts 1, Jesus is pointing and redirecting them to think differently about the arrival of the Holy Spirit, the purpose of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. So what's the priority then? What is the Lord pointing his followers to? Two here in the text as it pertains to the arrival of the Holy Spirit. I believe verse 8 gives the apostles, gives us clear marching orders with the coming of the Spirit. Look at the text, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, just pause just for a moment, okay? You are very familiar with that verse I just read. I'm convinced. Most, if not all of you here, are very familiar with that verse. Sometimes familiarity is not a good thing. Because familiarity, you just skim over it and you go to the next verse. At, at first glance, you, you recognize this text as, as the great commission of, of the book of Acts. Really? Right? You might know it as the outline for the book of Acts. And as you continue reading and studying Acts, I encourage you to put Acts 1.8 as a header in your thinking. Keep it right there in the forefront, okay? The ministry of the Holy Spirit begins in Jerusalem, will go outward to Judea and Samaria, and ultimately reach the very end of the earth. The book of Acts begins with the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the apostles in Jerusalem, Acts 1 through 7. Lord willing, this summer, that's where we're going to go. And then we see the gospel message moving outward then through the persecution and martyrdom. And we'll reach today in Samaria in Acts 8 through 12. And the remainder of the book then is a picture of the gospel expanding even further, reaching the world, Acts 13 to 28. Luke writes this historical account beginning in Jerusalem. But he ends in chapter 28 in Rome, the capital of the world at that time. So you have the question in verse 6, followed by an answer from Jesus in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 addresses the timing element of their question. It's not for you to know. The Father knows. Be content that He knows. Verse 8 then is a redirecting of their priorities unto His own. It's not for you to know when. But it's almost as though in verse 8 He's saying, it is good for you to know this. 
Here's what's good for you to know. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Not many days from now, you will receive this power. That's why it's important for you to wait for the promise. That's why it's important not to depart from Jerusalem. I have something in store for you that's going to alter history from this point forward. I'm about to leave, but as I've said before, I will not leave you as orphans. I will never leave you nor forsake you. In just a few short days, the arrival of the Holy Spirit would coincide with this feast, Pentecost. A feast, listen to this, this, this is God orchestrating this. A feast that would bring the nations to Jerusalem. The nations are coming. No coincidence. But God's perfect providential care to reveal, what's he revealing here? His gift, his gift of the Holy Spirit. And it would serve as a precursor to where this gospel was headed. It was going to the very end of the earth. That's where it was going. Let's talk just one moment about the power. The apostles would receive this power when the Holy Spirit comes. But the receiving of the power would not be an end of itself. No, but the power given is intended to advance the Lord's purposes. The power given is intended to advance the Lord's purposes. With this power, Jesus says, you shall be witnesses to me. You know, I was reminded, and, and, and fast forward to, to Acts chapter 8. You remember Simon the sorcerer? Simon the sorcerer was something. He, he, was, he was really something. He had a little thing going. A lot of people were amazed at his magic. He wowed the people. But you know, when the truth of the gospel came to town, people turned from that and started believing and following after the truth of the gospel. And Simon's a smart guy. Simon just simply says, hey, you know, can, I, can I give you some money for that? I'd like to be able to do that. That old laying on of hands thing. Can I, do, can, I just, can I just give you some money for that? And I can do that. I can have that power. And we know the response. right? Let that money perish with you, I believe, uh, is a paraphrase of what he says there to Simon. You know, it's important that we understand this power. This power has not been given that I might use it for my own purposes. Right? Simon, give me this power that I might look good among men. That's not, church, what the Lord had in mind when he sent the Spirit. And yet, how often have you tried to manipulate things by using the power of the Spirit in this manner? Have you seen the Spirit subservient to your purposes? Have you viewed the Holy Spirit as power to do what you'd like? Has the Holy Spirit served as your power to rescue you from worldly living and foolish living? Have you, have you used the Holy Spirit in such a way to promote your own way of doing things? 
Jesus gives the priority for the Holy Spirit right here in Acts 1, verse 8. And as a church, it would save us. As a church, listen, it would save us a great deal of time and energy and conflict if we would heed this word. The power given through the Holy Spirit is intended for something specific. You play a part in this as a part of his church. The Holy Spirit is coming upon them. That's what it says here in Acts. Not many days from now. And when he comes, he will bring power. And with that power, look carefully at what the Lord intends for that power to accomplish. It says, and you shall be witnesses to me. That's plural, witnesses. The Holy Spirit's presence in them correlated to a direct mission from the Lord. The promise of the Father brings with it power. And that power is intended to persuade, to point others to Jesus. You might think about witness and what is a witness and what's a witness do? Simply put, a witness could be, we oftentimes think of a witness as someone who takes the stand to testify of something as to whether it's true or not. Typically a witness is seen or is in the know on something, thereby making him a credible witness. See, the apostles had seen Jesus. They, They saw what he did. They heard what he taught. They saw him die on the cross. They saw him on the other side of the grave. And they were about to see him ascend back to the Father. The message communicated to the apostles is appropriate in light of all that they had seen and heard. So why is it that many followers of Jesus have lost sight of Acts chapter 1, verse 8? See, the words are are directly spoken to the apostles, but they hold a great deal of weight for the one who is following Jesus yet today. The priority of the Lord is this. Until I come back, Jesus says, here's what I want you to be consumed with. Be witnesses to me with the power I give you through the Holy Spirit. Be a beacon of light testifying of who I am. Wherever you go, whatever you do, may it be to give witness of me. The priority in the time that you have here on earth is to be a witness Stop with all the periphery squabbling. Stop with all the battle lines. Stop with the bickering and the arguing among yourselves. Stop with thinking like this is all about you and getting your way. The priority is to testify of who I am, Jesus says. He tells them, even in closing, where this is going to happen. Where this needs to take place. In Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, the very end of the earth. Of all places, Jerusalem would be the starting point for their witness. I mean, that was the place where not too long ago they were up in arms about this man, Jesus. I don't know. I mean, think about that. Maybe we don't think as much about that. But, you know, you're going to be a witness. You're, You're commanded and called to be a witness in Jerusalem in the place where they just killed the man that you're following. I can think of better places to begin. Jerusalem, that's where it's supposed to begin. You know, as this book of Acts unfolds, you're going to see the difficulty these witnesses had in Jerusalem. This was not an easy assignment. But, But then again, does the Lord ever hand out 
cupcake assignments. Those easy assignments. Does he hand those out? I don't see that in the Word. I oftentimes see hard things. Things that require faith and not sight. This witness, someone who is willing even to die for what he believes. And you know there are many today who are willing to die for a cause, right? Huh? I mean, buildings crashing into planes, they're willing to die for a cause. Jesus is advocating, though, the same kind of life that he... He's not asking you and me to do something he hasn't already done. He hasn't, he's not asking you and saying, hey, here's what you need to do. He, didn't he lay down his very life? And there were many who were not receptive to his message, right? And he tells the disciples, they're going to hate you because of me. See, a martyr is one who has no fear of man, but fears the one who alone can destroy both body and soul, right? There, there are no exceptions here in the text, church. A child of God has the spirit of God in him, and with that spirit, he has been given power, and that power is given to witness for Jesus. Some of you, let me put this out as a, as a helpful note. Please don't worry. Whenever we talk about being a witness and speaking and giving to, some of you immediately cringe and, ooh, uh, I can't do that. I'm not, I'm not made to do that. That's not my gift. Well, it may not be your gift, but it is what you're to be about. He does call you, if you have the Spirit of Christ in you, to open your mouth on his behalf. Here's the good news. Holy Spirit in you gives you words to speak when you don't know what to say. Thank goodness. Because there have been a lot of times in my life I didn't know what to say. But praise the Lord, the Lord just gives scriptures. And those are my answers. Here's what the word says. And he'll do that for you. That's what he does. He points you to the very words of Christ. I was reminded of that hymn, the line in that hymn that says, His power can make you what you ought to be. And that's a praise. His power does that. His power does that. The Holy Spirit, His presence in you, allows you to be what Paul says, that new creation. Behold, the old, old, old is gone. New has come. What is it that makes us new? What's different about us? Holy Spirit in you. Right? Going back to the baptism, the, the picture there, death, burial, resurrection. And, and Romans 6, remember we talked about this weeks ago, about when we are raised to life, that is equated to now walking in newness of life. We can only walk in newness of life, church. We can only walk in newness of life when the Spirit of Christ is in us. That's, that's why we can say it's new. Because <laughs> there's a lot about this body, right? It's old. 
It's decaying. It's wasting away. But the Holy Spirit in you will allow you and enable you to walk in the newness of life. So we have a promise, the promise of the Father, which is the Spirit. We have the power that's given when that promise, when the Holy Spirit arrives. And then we have persuasion, which is really this witness. You're called to be a witness. You shall be witnesses to me, Jesus says. Let's remember, you shall be witnesses to me. We get caught up, just a side note, we get caught up sometimes and feeling like we got to hold and wave this banner of whatever it is. You, put, you, you can put it in the box. Whatever label you want to carry around and hold up the banner and walk around and, and wave. Anything besides Jesus. Jesus is the priority here. He says, you're to be a witness to me. Let's be about being a witness for Jesus. And let's put down the banners that the Lord's not prioritizing these things. Let's be about prioritizing and being a witness and a proclaimer of Jesus and speaking the truth of Jesus to a world that needs to know about this Jesus. You see, man's assumption is not the Lord's priority. Oh, we can get so fuzzy and confused and, and, and things can get so distorted. The Lord's priority, I believe, is laid out right here in verse 8. Especially so. The priority of the Lord is to be a witness to the accomplished work and ministry of Jesus living in such a way that denies selfish desires and embraces a cross daily. Making disciples, maybe is another way we would, we would phrase it, right? Making disciples, Matthew 28. Being a witness of the wonderful works of God in your life. Putting on display the power of the Holy Spirit. Directing attention to Jesus, not yourself. Persuading men in light of Christ's imminent return. But until then, until that return, let's be about the work that he's given, that he's given in his word, that he's given priority to. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word of truth. I thank you for this particular passage which comes right before the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we sit here today long removed from that arrival of the Spirit. But yet we still are waiting for your return. And yet we still wait. Father, I pray that in that waiting, we would take to heart what your word says about what we're to be doing right now, about the role of the Holy Spirit in our life right now today, that we would see the Holy Spirit perhaps in a different light than what we've seen him before as we read this text today. Father, we would understand that we play very much a part of this, in this role that you've given, Lord. That the Holy Spirit, you should be baptized, the text says, with the Holy Spirit. That he lives within us, dwells within us forever, the text says in the Gospels. Oh, Father, I pray that we would be intentional about being a witness. I pray, Lord, that we would, we would be a witness, Lord, that you would be pleased with. 
that we would point people to Jesus. We would not point people to other things that might fuzzy and distort the picture of what the gospel is, about who the gospel is about. It's about Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we would be carriers of your name, speakers and proclaimers of your name, and we would herald this message of truth to people, to others, and be persuasive in light of the judgment yet to come. Oh, Lord, I pray we would speak. And thank you, Father, that your Holy Spirit gives us words to speak. I pray that we would rely upon you for all things, that in your strength we would walk each day, that as a church body we would keep in step with the Spirit together and do this life together. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. We praise you for Jesus and the salvation that you've given to us through Christ. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.